Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. This is my This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the one and only Mea Culpa Podcast, now on the Mighty Midas Touch Network. So look for all future episodes of our show behind the blue banner, and we're glad you're here. But now for the news. I hate to tell you, but Russia was never a hoax. It was never a witch hunt. It was never anything other than real and terrifying. And somehow... Somehow, the Republicans kept managing to sweep the facts under the rug. But the truth is that the Russians helped Trump win in 2016, and they haven't stopped interfering in our politics since. Their mission was and is to destroy us, divide and conquer us, because having a functioning democracy on full display isn't good for autocrats. Why? Well, because it looks like freedom. And now with the internet, it's hard for the rest of the world to ignore the difference between, say, Russia and China, where the people are controlled through military enforcement, and the United States. Oppressed people with a window into our democracy might just want it for themselves. And that's a strongman's nightmare. They have to put that sort of unrest down immediately or risk a revolution. But what if our democracy didn't exist at all? What if the United States was just as ugly and mean-spirited as the Russian oligarchy? And what if we became a dictatorship? We'd be much less desirable, and that's where Trump came in. He's always wanted to be a dictator. But what he's become is a useful fucking idiot carrying out Putin's plan to turn us into a Russian satellite to tear up our constitution and dumb down our people. Because stupid people follow bad leaders. And I've said it many times before. Trump has always wanted to be Putin. Trump's former campaign manager, Paul Manafort, was paid bigly, bigly, to promote Russian interests in the United States. And does anyone remember Helsinki? Or the Mueller report that Bill Barr shit on? Or how about Hunter Biden's laptop that mysteriously ended up in, yeah, Rudy Colludi fucking Giuliani's possession? As Nancy Pelosi said, with Trump, all roads lead to Putin. Today, there's a whole wing of the Republican Party that's serving Putin. Because Trump normalized the former KGB operative and told Republicans that Putin was less dangerous than Democrats. So Democrats became the sworn enemy of MAGA Republicans and their constituents. I mean, think about that. Think about that for a second. A whole lot of Americans prefer Vladimir Putin to Democrats and would rather side with him than work with us. 
The sad thing about this story is that Putin is so entrenched in our political system that I'm not sure that we can ever get him out. But we've got to try. There are known Russian assets on the campaign trail for Trump right now. Let's look at him. General Mike Flynn is still out there shilling for Putin. And Tulsi Gabbard is supposedly Trump's new favorite to being his running mate. Elon Musk hooked the Kremlin up with Starlink. And of course, there's always Tucker fucker Carlson, who's laundering of Putin's image with a preening interview about nothing, helped to put the nail in Navalny's coffin. Putin's latest conquest, Moscow Mike Johnson, I mean, we all know who Mike Johnson is, Speaker of the House, just gave the House a vacation rather than fund our NATO allies in Ukraine which has severely weakened us in the eyes of the world. But then this happened. The few House members who stayed behind to further their latest impeachment scheme got a swift fucking kick in the ass. Because the guy that they were depending on to deliver the goods on Biden's turns out to be working for, you guessed it, Putin. Comer Pyle and Jim Bag Jordan were either duped by a compromised FBI informant aptly named Alexander Smirnov, or they were in on it. Either way, Smirnov got his materials from Russian intelligence. He peddled this pile of shit to Senate dummies who just forgot to fact check his stories. I mean, what? The House doesn't have subpoena power or any ability to investigate claims that could potentially impeach a sitting president. No, they have all that, but they have just wanted to ram their lies down our throats. No questions asked. In fact, Jim Beck Jordan, who has been spearheading the GOP's impeachment inquiry, said recently that Smirnov's assertion that the president received a $5 million bribe from a Ukrainian oligarch was the most corroborated evidence that Republicans had against Biden. And it was from a highly credible confidential human source. Yeah, sure. Well, last week, Smirnov, was charged by the Justice Department for lying to the FBI and making false bribery claims against the Bidens. The DOJ noted that after Smirnov was arrested, he admitted, the fucking guy admitted that officials associated with Russian intelligence had made up the whole sordid story. Now, you'd think that after relentlessly pushing a total lie, Republicans would be contrite. They would apologize, but no. A petulant Jim Jordan said on Wednesday when confronted by the press that, and I quote, revelations about the informant's claims still doesn't change the fundamental facts. I mean, what fundamental facts, you fucking moron? Jim Bag, you fucking moron. What fundamental facts are you talking about? The fact is, you fucking jerk-off, is that you've been played. Your theories have all been debunked. But according to the Daily Beast, Jordan countered with what appears to be a new pro-Trump narrative that, and again I quote, the FBI is at fault for giving credibility to Smirnov's unsubstantiated allegations. Yeah, sure, blame the FBI. It's not like Jordan is the judiciary chairman or anything like that. I mean, this whole thing is fucking pathetic. 
but they can't stop. During a closed-door impeachment hearing on Wednesday, Jordan and his cohorts proceeded to question the president's brother, James Biden, who confirmed that he never relied on his brother's influence for anything. In fact, he said that in his 50-year career, Joe Biden had never had any involvement or any direct or indirect financial interest in his business activities. And I'm going to make a quote. Those who have said or thought otherwise were either mistaken, ill-informed, or flat-out lying. After Jim Biden's grilling, our good friend Senator Jamie Raskin told the press on Wednesday, the impeachment investigation essentially ended yesterday, in substance, if not in form, with the explosive revelation that Mr. Smirnov's allegations about Ukrainian Burisma payments to Joe Biden were concocted along with Russian intelligence agents. It appears like the whole thing is not only obviously false and fraudulent, but a product of Russian disinformation and propaganda. Senator Raskin for the win. I mean, all I can say is this. Russia, if you're listening, get the hell out of American politics because it's going to be Biden-Harris in 2024. And now for the main event. <laughs> Mayor Culpa welcomes back our good friend Ellie Honig, acclaimed author of the national bestsellers Untouchable, How Powerful People Get Away With It. And Hatchet Man, how Bill Barr broke the prosecutor's code and corrupted the Justice Department. Something I've read and I fully agree with. You might also know Honig from his popular podcast, Up Against the Mob and Cafe Brief. Honig is a CNN senior legal analyst and a former federal and state prosecutor, here to talk with us about the latest developments in Trump's various trials and more. So let's go now to that conversation. Okay, so Ellie, great to have you back on the show. There's actually nobody I could think of that would be better to take what I'm going to be talking to you about for the next hour than you, as it relates to all of the different legal issues confronting Trump and others. So let me start by asking you this. How significant is Judge Ngoron's decision regarding the Trump Organization, and what potential implications does it have for Trump's legal exposure? So this is one of those rare times when you can actually quantify an answer to the question, how significant or how important? It's 350 whatever million dollars significant. Um, That is a real number. I mean, look, it's going to have to go through the appeal process. Perhaps it gets knocked down. You, you You can't ever know for sure what's going to happen on appeal. But one thing that people need to understand about this, this is a judgment owed to the state of New York. This is not negotiable. This is not something Donald Trump can walk away from. You know Michael better than anyone. He he loves to walk out on his contractors, not pay his bills, not pay his attorneys. Um, that's not in play here. He, he when, when all is said and done, when this appeal is over, and we can talk a little bit about that process, whatever number comes out the back end of that will be paid. And whether it's in cash, in liquidity, or whether he has to liquefy certain assets, um, that bottom line dollar figure will be paid off. Now, you know, people say like, how, someone asked me the other day, how much of Donald Trump's wealth is this? I know the, the what's the top number? The numerator is 350. I don't know the denominator though. You know, there's, you, you may have a better sense than me, like what his total 
net value is. There's people out there who sort of know this and study this. There's a, a very good reporter for Fortune Magazine who's – I forget his name, Daniel Dan something. Dan Alexander um, from Forbes on Trump. Magazine. Yeah, yeah. On, right, on Forbes, on Trump's wealth. And then there's guys who've written about it like David K. Johnson. Mm-hmm. You probably know somewhat firsthand. But, I mean, no matter what he's worth total, I think if it ends up in the $300, $400 million range, that's a – that's a big hit any way you slice it. But it's actually more than that because the 354 was Judge Ngoron's verdict number. But then we have the 9% statutory interest that brings it interest. to, based yep. upon the number of years that they're charging it, it's compounded. You're talking about another yep. $100 million. So it's not 354, yep. it's actually 454 plus the $88.6 million that's for the E. Jean Carroll from case. E. Jean Carroll. I mean, you're like $550 million right now in yeah. civil, in civil judgments. Yeah. That's pretty significant. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, look, these are the less of his problems, right? The, the four criminal cases, I, I, would, I would be more worried about if, if I had resources like that, I'd be way more worried about uh, the outcome of criminal cases than these civil cases. But yeah, you know, the numbers are enormous. We'll see if they stand on appeal. But um, I mean, again, this is not the kind of thing where you get a bill from a, a concrete pourer and say, eh, pay, pay 10% of it. Like, this right. is real. And, and it's important to understand, by the way, in the New York case, well, they're both New York cases, but in the New York AG's case, and this is one of the criticisms of the case. You don't have individual victims per se, and maybe there's some second order tertiary victims, but this isn't your typical fraud civil suit where, let's say, a group of shareholders who are out of pocket or a group of investors who got ripped off are saying, you owe us this money back. This is a little bit different procedurally. This is the New York State Attorney General on behalf of the the taxpayers of New York saying, this is ill-gotten gains. The technical word is disgorgement. Mm -hmm. You're being disgorged. We're we're taking the money out from you. And so um, the New York AG's office, you know, there's there's a clip I talked about this morning on air for CNN, but there's a clip of the Attorney General, Letitia James, saying, well, if necessary, we're going to take his buildings. And I, I said, yeah, I mean, that's... I know I look the AG has definitely been involved in some some boasting about this and she's made public comments that I think are inappropriate but that's just stating the normal of how this works that particular comment yeah if if he can't satisfy a cash judgment they will liquidate his assets the other thing to notice Michael is it's not even really up to Donald Trump per se because he is According to this decision, he's kicked out of his business for three years and his sons are out for two years. And the business is largely in the hands of this independent monitor, ju- former retired judge, federal judge, Barbara Jones, who I appeared in front of. Did you have some? I forget. Did you ever? Yes, have I did. She her? was the, yeah, what did, the special master oh, that's, on yes. my case when they were reviewing the 10 million documents that were seized by the FBI. That's right. I, I knew you had some association with her. I appeared in front of her a bunch of times. I mean, I'll tell you, she's. One of the best. She was just seen as one yeah, of the I think best she's judges. Very, I think she's very professional. Uh, and I yeah. thought she was – I didn't think she was lenient at all, at least as it no. related <laughs> to me. I mean, how do you go through 10 million documents in 45 days? It wasn't like I was given like Trump or Weisselberg or any of these guys two years to go through 10 million documents. I was given 45 days. Right. Right. Yeah, no, she was definitely not a soft touch. Uh, you know, we, she was seen as more pro-prosecution. I think most defendants, if, if her, their case got wheeled out to her, not that you were a defendant in that case, but I think most defendants would say, oh, that's not a great draw. I mean, she was a she was a uh, very accomplished prosecutor at the SDNY many years before yeah. me. 
But um, she's in charge, essentially, of the business. I mean, she she is has made clear she's trying to work within the existing structures of the business. But ultimately, the decision what to do with the assets over the next several years is, is going to be hers. So even if Trump doesn't want something to happen, he, he is, again, if this verdict stands, he's on the sidelines for three years. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And she look, if you have a judgment that's owed to the state of New York, and she is the um, she's the receiver the in charge, yeah. the monitor uh, that's in charge. Yeah, they will have to liquidate. You know, you bring up a great point because so many people that you listen to on television, oh, Donald Trump, or obviously these maggot morons that think that they know everything. They make a statement with no factual accuracy to it, but they make it with such an emphatic you know, a tone of voice as if that's going to change anything. So they turn around and they say, Donald Trump's never going to pay that amount of money. He's never going to pay E. Jean Carroll. He's never going to pay the state of New York and so on. Yeah. Wrong. Yeah. Wrong. In We're fact, in a different ballpark now. Yeah, totally. The, the, these are civil judgments. These, these are not negotiable. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, he's, he's famous, infamous for stiffing people back to his real estate days, but... And then essentially daring them to take them into court. But once once these cases go through their appeals, if those verdicts are still standing, that that's that's it. He will pay. Yeah, remember I took him to court for the legal fees. Yeah. And once you get his ass to the you know, to the firing line, that's when he pays. You know, but you brought up a good point about how much is he actually worth. Well, right now, Forbes lowered his we'll call it net worth. To $2 billion. Now, that's a lot of money. Don't get me wrong. I mean, that's the kind of money you never have to work another day in your life. However, with this $550 million verdict against him, that's not pre-tax dollars. That's after-tax dollars. He does not have the cash on hand within which to pay it. So now, where do you get the money? Well, right. if, if you want to file the appeal, which the judge um, gave 30 days to do so, and we're about seven days in, give or mm-hmm. take, six days in, so he has another, say, 25 days. One of two ways, obviously. Either you put up cash, which, again, he doesn't have. He did do that, the $5.3 million for the right. first E. Jean Carroll case, but he, does, he has not done that. From my understanding, in the second case, uh, the eighty-three million dollar verdict. So, so the question becomes: How does he do? How does he file the appeal if he doesn't have either a bond? And I don't. I can't think of a bonding company that has a credit line of a half a billion dollars to even cover this. So, I also can't yeah. think of a bonding company that would be willing to put their ass on the line for him and even to take collateral like right. a 40 Wall Street because 40 Wall Street has lenders attached to it and the lenders will come first. So therefore, in order for them to get their money, they're going to have to pay off the other lenders. It's like a it's a real problem. Yeah. So it's important to understand Trump does not have to post the full amount of the judgment in cash. He actually did put it in a sort of escrow account for the five point, I think, five million dollars 
from the first E. Jean Carroll verdict, but he doesn't have to post $83 million cash or in this case, $350 million cash. Um, it, it's up to first in the first instance, if the parties can negotiate it, then they go to the judge and go, we're satisfied with this. Now, who knows if that's going to if they're going to reach some agreement. But if not, the judge can then just set the bond amount. And I think the judge will set a cash component, uh, probably a healthy one. And then say, yeah, you can post sort of like if you're posting bail, you can post the deed, the rights, the ownership rights to whatever properties. Um, And and that'll be up to the judge to sort out. But it is pretty rare that somebody I I, I can't I mean, not that I have thousands of examples, but I can't think of an example of somebody who was unable to post the bond and therefore was not allowed to appeal. I mean, judges are supposed to try to facilitate the bond so that a person, and they do have a right to appeal, so that a person can exercise that right. So I don't think he's going to get shut out of an appeal, but I agree that it will be difficult and painful to post the bond and then even more so to post the ultimate judgment. But Trump is an unusual situation because he's the guy that's out there talking about how rich he is. Well, if you are actually rich, then post the bond as anybody would. And think about it this way. If hypothetically... You need to post um, a bond for a criminal case. And the only thing that you have, let's say, is your home. Right. That but happens the problem a lot. is that your home is mortgaged onto it. There's not a lot of bonding companies that want to take an encumbered property, yeah. especially not in this case, because now, you, again, you have to fight with the lenders in order to be able to then liquidate the asset to get, right. your, to get your money to cover the bond. Yep, so, yep. And, and here we're talking about real numbers. Yeah, courts will sometimes accept, you know, properties that are still mortgaged or whatever. It's not you don't necessarily have to go through a bonding company, but I agree, it's complicated and, and it's going to be Very. a headache for him at, at, at the least. You know, and just to jump through in Goron's decision for a second because I don't think that it's getting enough credit for really what this decision is. We're talking about a 92-page decision that's really very comprehensive. It literally goes through all of the witnesses. And in Goron, almost like if it was a school project, is go, goes through each and every one of the witnesses and the documentation and the testimony in order to justify where this $354 million came from. And again, like I said, it's really $450 million with the interest. But I want to just draw your attention to a couple of people, right? He starts out, and I'm just going to jump right in now because I'm just going to go with the major sort of players, Jeff McConney. Now, Jeff McConney, for my listeners and for others who are listening... Jeff McConney was not an executive at the Trump organization. He was really Allen's lackey. He was the assistant controller at the Trump organization. And here's what he says on page 24. McConney's emails and contemporaneous notes indicate that Eric Trump and Don Trump Jr. had final review of the SFCs, the Statement of Financial Conditions, after Donald Trump assumed the presidency of the United States. So they're talking about 2017. He goes on to say, McConney testified that he never hid any information from Donald Bender. And Donald Bender, remember, is the accountant from Mazers. However, this is belied by the documentary evidence and the testimony of Bender, 
which conclusively established that Mazers did, in fact, inquire about appraisals, and here's a great line, and that McConney falsely told them that there were none. I don't know. That seems to me to have been almost like, as it relates to McConney, that now completely discredits him from this testimony. So this opinion is one of the most appeal-proofed opinions that I've seen. And I don't mean that as a criticism. You can almost sense Judge Angoran with every line is writing for the Court of Appeals and trying to insulate his ruling, which mm-hmm. trial judges should do. And and you're right. It, it almost reads it, – it's almost a boring read in that it's just so systematic. It just – this property, this property, this property, this witness, this witness. There's no attempt to like weave a, a beautiful narrative or anything. And it's not – that's not the judge's job to do that. And one thing that the judge does is when he goes witness by witness, he makes very specific credibility findings. And there's two reasons for that. One is that's the trial judge's job to to say, which witnesses do I believe and not believe? And I want to talk about what he says about you because I, I want to get your, your reaction. You have a, a, an in- interesting couple paragraphs in here. And then the second thing is when a case goes up on appeal – an area where the trial judge is going to be given very broad discretion is how does he weigh the evidence? How does he assess the witnesses? And judges really know how to make a record on this. I've seen trial judges go, I saw the witness. He sat six feet away from me in the witness box. I was able to observe his mannerisms uh, because the, the Court of Appeals is not going to come down for the most part and say, well, we disagree with you. You should have believed that witness who you did not believe or vice versa. So Judges, to the extent they can base their rulings on their assessments of credibility of witnesses and evidence, they do that because it, it insulates them from appeal. Can we can we look at what he says about about before, your testimony? Before we go to me, okay. I want to just bring You're up the star uh, here. To, your your proof positive is on page twenty eight. He talks about Alan Weisselberg, the right. CFO. Weisselberg had final approval over the forty Wall Street budgets and was thus aware that in 2011, the Trump organization had negative cash flow from 40 Wall Street. He, Mm -hmm. meaning Weisselberg, nonetheless directed Donna Kidder, and she was also an assistant controller, a Trump employee who worked in accounting, to prepare a document containing a series of, this is great, a series of of implausible assumptions to generate a $26.2 million net operating income. I mean, again, he is now basically smacking them with a fucking hammer across the head, right? I mean, you're creating a fake document, implausible assertions in order to show a $26.2 million net operating income. He goes on to then say, and this is on page 30, on March 3rd of 2017, Alan Garten, who's general counsel, chief legal officer for the Trump organization, forwarded Trump Jr. an email from Forbes that inter alia questioned the claimed size of Donald Trump's Trump Tower triplex and cited that property records indicated It was only 10,996 square feet. Trump Jr. acknowledged receiving the email and he responded the same day with, and here's the quote, insane amount of stuff here. Not really even sure what that means. But here's the greatest line so far. Notwithstanding 
four days later, on March 10th of 2017, Trump Jr., along with Weisselberg, signed a management representation letter to Mazers in which they represented the value of the triplex based on the false assumption that it was 30,000 square feet. I mean, again, to prove what you were saying, this, this guy, Ngoron, Judge Ngoron, lays this out. And then he does the same thing with Eric. And he does the same thing, again, with, um, with so many others. Mm-hmm. The fact that they lied, that they lied during their testimony. Don Jr. lied. Eric Trump lied. Donna Kidder lied. Ivanka lied. They all lied um, on their testimony. And in this 92-page document, he calls each and every one of those lies out. Then we get to me. <laughs> here we go. This is the good part. Come then on. We, then, we get to, then we get to dear old Michael here. All right. Uh, I have it. Let's see. That, that's page 32. Well, let me, let me right? give away 31 the bottom to 33. line. Can, sure. I, can I ask you your reactions to this? Of course you can. So the bottom line the judge reaches is that he credits you. He believes you. And I, and I think this is interesting both from a perspective of knowing you and also from a perspective of you're going to be a, a very important witness at a case that we're going to discuss, I'm sure, in a moment, the Manhattan DA's criminal case. So here's what he says. Michael Cohen was an important witness on behalf of the plaintiff, although hardly the linchpin that defendants have a, attempted to portray him to be. Um, I found that interesting. He said, Michael can we, Cohen can was we stop? Can we stop with, with yeah. that just line for a quick second? Yeah. What happened was Alina Haba tried to continuously make the assertion that this whole case right. is predicated on Michael Cohen. Right. He's Which the I know one you disagree witness. with, and the He's, judge agrees with you. Well, because I was not. In fact, right. the judge, when, when Chris Kais uh, and Cliff Robert got up and that they moved to dismiss the case, um, they wanted summary judgment decision right there at, um, at trial, to which the judge said, emphatically no <laughs> no way yeah. and they said well you know it's based upon the testimony of michael cohen who's a convicted perjurer blah 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 you know we want a directed verdict and judge said no that's what the point was they were claiming that i was the sole witness here on behalf of the state that i am the linchpin and the judge's comment to cliff robert and alina haba who were both standing at the time Chris Kyes was somewhere off picking his nose in the side. But what he turned around and he said to them is, there are enough witnesses and documents in this case to fill this courtroom. That's what that line was well, about. I know. And it's interesting because I think I think we may see a similar dynamic at the criminal case. I think the defense may try to put it all on you. And I think the prosecution is going to say, Michael Cohen's a very important witness here, but, but there's a lot of other evidence and that they'll argue that supports you. Okay, so the judge says... I'll give it. There's the bad news and the good news. The bad news is the judge says his Cohen's testimony was significantly compromised by his having pleaded guilty to perjury. We know that. Um, We've talked about that. That was, you know, in ye olden days. And by some seeming contradictions in what he said at trial. So that I want to hear your reaction to. I think I know what the judge is referring to here. But then the judge says, however, carefully parsed, Cohen testified uh, that although Donald Trump did expressly, I'm sorry did not expressly direct him to reverse engineer financial statements. He ordered him to do so indirectly in his, quote, mob voice. And then the judge goes on to to conclude, Michael Cohen told the truth. 
So, but what do you make of that seeming contradictions line? I think he's talking about your, correct me if I'm wrong. And I think this was a little bit unfair to you. Um, the, the, that you have, ex- you have explained the way Donald Trump dealt with you and Ellen Weisselberg slightly differently um, in the way that humans normally would. At times you've said, yeah, of course he, he knew what we were doing. He told us to do this. At other times you've said, well, he, but he never, uh, and it's consistent. Okay, said, well, so, he never yeah, so explicitly let me said, cook the exactly. book. He, he made it known through his it, longstanding pattern of behavior. Exactly. What he, yeah. what we were talking about here is the distinction between implicit right. and explicit comments. I had made a statement that, as you said, that Donald knew what we were talking about uh, and so on. But I did also say that Donald did not expl- specifically tell me to reverse engineer the numbers. He did not. It would be yeah. like if I'm telling you, Ellie Honig, right? Former prosecutor, lawyer extraordinaire. I'm telling you, I want you to reverse engineer and show that I am worth right. $10 billion. That's not what he said. And so yeah. I answered the question accurately. But right. when you give somebody only an opportunity to answer it yes or no, right. that was what he's talking about. I think that's right. And, and, that's and-, why, and that's why he goes on in the very next sentence to say, although the animosity between the witness and the defendant is palpable, and that's a true statement, of course. providing Cohen with an incentive to lie, I did not. The court found his testimony credible based on the relaxed manner in which he testified, the general plausibility <laughs> relaxed, never of his statements, <laughs> and most importantly, the way his testimony was corroborated by there other trial evidence. Yeah. Period. End of story. So, you see, it's the same thing that I did when I testified before the House Oversight Committee. I knew, right. and I told the Republicans, okay. I know what you're going to do. You're going to attack me on every single thing that I say, and you're going to make it seem as if though I am lying, right? And so instead, let's base it off of documentary evidence. That way, there's no, yeah. nothing is in question here. And he so, finally finishes, Michael Cohen told the truth. So, he right. doesn't say that about Donald. He doesn't say it about Junior or Eric, or Ivanka, or Weisselberg, or McConney. Yeah, so a couple things. First of all, I did chuckle when I said when I saw that he said that Michael Cohen was relaxed. when he. I said, when does Michael Cohen ever relax when he, when he speaks on his podcast yes. or in public? But I think he meant, That's I think he true. just meant, I think he meant you, you, your, your bearing, your demeanor was credible. Um, you didn't seem like somebody who was intense because you were lying. You're intense because you, you are passionate about this stuff. Um, and... You know, you have been consistent. I, I actually have a section in my book about the way that powerful people and bosses of certain organizations know how to give <laughs> instructions without saying it. And I quote you from years ago when you were testifying about your false testimony about the Russia the timing of the Russia deal, right? You end up pleading right. to this. But you say very clearly in Congress, I think you're asked, well, did Trump tell you to lie about the dates on, on Russia? And you said, I thought very candidly, you said, no, that's not how he operates. But he made it very clear. He would call me in. He would say, oh, you got a subpoena, the Russia thing. There were no deals. Mm-hmm. And, and Michael, there's no Russia, Russia, Russia. Right. Right. And so that is very consistent with how you testified in this case. Yeah. So let me then move on and ask you this, because, yes, Michael Cohen told the truth 
And, you know, unlike what you were initially describing, if this was, um, you know, say shareholders going after somebody where nobody lost money, that, you know, would be called the derivative shareholders action, right? But this is, as you stated, is completely different. This is disgorgement. This is money that the judge has made a very credible determination is owed to the people of New York that he benefited from by not telling the truth, by providing false documentation and using that false documentation to his own benefit. So I want to move on this because obviously I'm also involved in the Manhattan DA criminal case. And yeah. with that case looming now over Trump, what key challenges do you anticipate his defense team will face? So... This thing is on, first of all, right? March 25th. I mean, last oh, week there yeah. was a hearing and they tried to, they tried all the, the sort of normal maneuvers that any defendant does in the last pretrial conference, tries to get postponement and dismissal. They all failed. Um, what challenges does the defense face here? Well, so, so look, I think there have been legitimate questions about whether this case should have been charged criminally. It's a fact that I reported that the feds passed on it. It's a fact that Cy Vance didn't charge it while he was in office. Um, and Alvin Bragg, I should say, is a friend of mine and a former colleague, chose to charge it. So I think there's a fair question either way about whether it should have been charged, but it is charged. And the prosecution I was, is going I was to charge. I was charged with it. You were charged by, by the, the Southern right. District but, but, of New York. Right. I agree. Right. There, there, there's a there's an asymmetry there and the fact that or to put it in plain, plain English, an injustice and the fact that you were charged. But but Trump was not different decisions made at different times. Um, I'm not defending it. I'm telling you what happened. Um, the, the, it's important to understand the crime here. And you know, this is not the payment of hush money. Payment of hush no. money is not a crime. It's seedy, but it's not illegal. The crime is the booking, the way that the payments were recorded on the Trump organization's internal document. So. I don't there's no question whatsoever the defense is not going to contest the fact that a hush money was paid b Donald Trump knew about it right um and, but I think their defense is going to be the prosecution cannot prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Donald Trump knew about or was responsible for those payments being logged as legal fees or attorney's fees and they're going to say the people who decide how it's booked are Michael Cohen the lawyer who's receiving those fees, you know, as reimbursements and Alan Weisselberg. And so I think the biggest, to me, that's the real crux of this case. Will the prosecu prosecution be able to prove that Donald Trump was involved in the actual logging, booking, accounting of those payments as legal fees? Mm -hmm. Interesting, because, um, you know, and obviously I don't want to get too deep into the woods on, you know, on this case, because right. uh, obviously I'm going to be called as a witness. Remember what I had said before, uh, not just to the House Oversight Committee um, under, you know, um, rest his soul, uh, Elijah Cummings, and the same thing that I said to the New York AG. These cases are not based upon my word versus Donald's word. Or right. me trying to convince Ellie Honig or my listeners that what I'm saying is that this is predicated off of documentary inf documentary evidence. And, right. you know, rest assured, the only thing that I would push back and say is it wasn't that uh, Cy Vance chose not to bring this case because he didn't believe in it. Just take a look at Mark Pomerantz's book as an example. Uh, or the statements that Pomerantz had made. 
they would have charged Donald with even more stuff than just the campaign finance violation, the uh, bank uh, record frauds, and so on. This is something that's routinely brought by the Manhattan DA's office. This isn't just unique to Donald Trump. I will grant to you, and something that I say all the time, so it's not going to be something different. I don't know why we as a society have decided that our legal system is like the Kentucky Derby. That, <laughs> we're, now, that we're now ranking which case <laughs> is more illegal than the other. Because I'm with you. If you want to say which is the most illegal, con- definitively, as far as I'm concerned, yeah. would be the January 6th insurrection. Followed by maybe a nose behind with the Mar-a-Lago documents. I absolutely agree. And right. then... In a third photo finish is definitely the Fulton County, Georgia case, because those are certainly more grotesque in terms of illegal behavior than business record violations, campaign fraud, etc. I totally agree. But that doesn't mean that the business record fraud is not illegal. Many people have gone to jail for it, myself included. Right. So plenty you're you're right that they've charged business records fraud quite quite a bit. It's a fairly straightforward charge as usually applied. Um but it's also I like the Kentucky Derby analogy. I think that's that that's sensible. But it's also not the case that well are the elements of a crime met therefore we charge. You have to always look at the bigger picture. You have to look at how strong is our proof? How old is the conduct? How serious is the conduct? Um, what have other prosecutors who've looked at this done? And I think it's a tough call. I mean, there's a reason the feds declined it. There's a reason. Cy Vance, the, the, mecker, the record is a bit mixed about whether well, he well, was you going and I to can charge argue, And we have. You and I yeah. have debated why the Southern District of New York declined. First of all, Donald was president of the United States but at I the mean, time. But I mean, for the, for the whole, whole year after he was gone. They, they, they knew... When Trump, when they knew Trump was had lost the election, they had a series of internal meetings where they said, "Oh, what are we going to do now?" Because they were able to hide behind that convenient policy, say, "Well, we don't have to ever wrestle with this ugly decision because he's still president." When he lost, they had a series of internal meetings, and and look, their decision wasn't was not well. This is a bogus case that has no basis in law. Their decision, and again, I it's a it's a tough one. I can see it either way. Their decision was the conduct is old. The conduct is borderline. I mean, it's it's technical, and they didn't think the proof was strong enough. And when I say the, the the conduct was technical, I mean this was all internal documents. It's not like in a typical fraud case. I, I assure you that if you went back and looked at these New York business fraud cases that that the DA's office likes to trumpet, all of them or virtually all of them, I would bet involved falsifying a business record and then using it to do something. Okay, falsifying our statements and going to get a loan. Falsifying our documents and using it to rip people off. Here, these documents were sitting in binders in Trump Tower, basically. And they're like, oh, you you wrote it wrong. You wrote it wrong on your internal records. There you go. Crime. And I think that's a weakness in the case. That's that's an atmospheric weakness in the case, but that stuff matters. Um, So look, it wouldn't shock me at all. Let me be clear. Most criminal trials result in conviction, and Donald Trump is despised. I mean, it's a it's a great place for prosecutors. The two best places you want to try Donald Trump in terms of just his popularity are Manhattan and Washington, D.C., and that's where two of the four trials are going to be. Um, 
so it wouldn't shock me to see him be convicted. I'm really interested to see what what the jury makes of your testimony. I I, I have I'm, I'll preview this. I'm working on a piece for New York Magazine about your impending testimony, and I write that we're friends, and I've done your podcast, and I say I, I trust you, you know, by, by and large. I say sometimes emotions drive his, his feelings. But it's going to be really interesting to see what a jury makes of you. And I say, look, I I, I trust the guy. Um, I, I understand his past. But um, will 12 New Yorkers, I would be comfortable with it. I understand the baggage that you carry with you, your, your A, your, your prior uh, guilty plea, and B, the fact that you openly hate Donald Trump so much. I mean, you're definitely a biased witness. Um, but I do say in the piece, in a sense, Michael's hatred towards Trump almost almost confirms his honesty because you're so comfortable with how much you hate this guy. You're not like simmering beneath the surface. You are over the top in how much you hate him. So I'm really interested well, to see it's what not the jury so much, makes what, you know what I really you know what I really want? You could even include this in your piece. I yeah. want to see him held accountable. Right. You see, I know what you he went to jail. You went to Otisville. To me. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah. You know, and I and I'm still affected as a result, I still haven't gotten my decision from Judge Furman on the release, just supervised release, termination, even though probation has said, yeah, we agree. This should be terminated. Oh, they did. Oh, he's, how much? He's already sitting. Yeah, six weeks already I'm waiting. I have another 10 months. That's interesting. Another I, 10 yeah. months. I, I've, I've gotten, gotten those, those motions sometimes. We used to get those once in a while, someone asking to end probation early or, or supervised release early. Yeah. Um, They're gosh, routine. I'm trying to think. Yeah, it's I mean, routine these days. Yeah, uh, I I know Judge Furman. He started uh, a few months after me at the U.S. Attorney's Office. He's way, well older and much more serious and accomplished than me. But uh, I don't you know, know about he, that one. But <laughs> you know, let, let's not let's not knock you. But can I He's move on for a second? Yeah, yeah. So let's move to the Fulton County, Georgia case. Yeah. What unique legal complexities are at play and how might they differ from other cases that Trump has or will encounter, including like the Manhattan DA case? Yeah, I've been skeptical of that case from the start for for a few reasons. And and we'll talk about the hearings from last week in a moment. But I I always, you know, that charge is largely not 100 percent, but pretty darn close largely duplicative of the conduct charged in Jack Smith's federal case. And there's no legal rule against that, but it it, it begs the question, why? If if he's been charged, and and I know what you're going to say, the the whole pardoning thing, um, but I'm not sure it's a great precedent to have state prosecutors piling on. But beyond that, the DA, Fonnie Willis, look, when she testified last week, I found it to be very compelling, and, and I found her, frankly, to be likable and and um, a powerful presence. But the reality is she has displayed very poor prosecutorial judgment and ethical judgment throughout this case. And and I'll give you some specific examples. She already got disqualified from a a substantial piece of this case because she created a political conflict of interest for herself when she subpoenaed a guy and then did a fundraiser for his Democratic political opponent. The judge, who, by the way, did everything Fonnie Willis wanted, a different judge, uh, the, the the judge who was overseeing the grand jury, excoriated her. He said, what were you thinking? The optics are horrible. And as a result, her, her office is out of that part of the case. That's number one. Number two, she has made inappropriate public statements throughout this case, including recently at the church. There is no excuse on this planet. It violates Georgia rules of uh, of ethics and professional responsibility 
for a prosecutor to make an out-of-court statement that might inflame the jury pool. Fonnie Willis got up in, in, in a historic black church on Martin Luther King Day and said out of court, the reason they brought these motions is because of racism. I'm paraphrasing, but she said, they're, why are they picking on the one special prosecutor who's a black man and not the other two? Um, that is an outrageous, inflammatory statement. And then when Fonnie Willis finally responded the way she should have in court, what does she say about that speech? She says, oh, I wasn't talking about this case of those defendants. I mean, I'm sorry, Michael. That is a Donald Trump level denial of the patently obvious. So I have problems with, with the, she, by the way, also she, she fundraised off this case. She would, she subpoenaed Lindsey Graham at one point and then she tweeted it out and said, hey, everyone, look, I subpoenaed, she it was a political cartoon making fun of Lindsey Graham showing her catching him like on a fishing rod. And she she basically says, hey, look, everyone, I, I subpoenaed Lindsey Graham. Uh, donate to me. That is really inappropriate as well. Now, but the core legal issue here when it comes to her disqualification is does she have a identifiable financial conflict of interest? And I think based on what we've seen in this hearing, and we've not seen it all, there are things happening behind closed doors because there's privilege issues. Based on what we've seen, I do not think that the defendants, meaning the people who are challenging her, I don't quite think they've carried their burden. All that came through was she has this relationship with Nathan Wade. She and Wade claim it happened after he started. There's some other evidence that started before. I'm dubious and skeptical of the claim that it only happened after. That doesn't add up to me common sense wise, but it wasn't proven you know, in a concrete way that they started their relationship beforehand. Then they, there's some intermingling of finances. That's clear. She admits that Wade paid for some things, but she says, I would always pay him back in cash. And, and it doesn't seem that the, that, the prosec that the defendants have really overcome that. I mean, look, it's not a great fact for her, by the way, the fact that she's carrying around stacks of cash or has them in her home and is using them to pay off, not pay off, but to pay for portions of travel and recreation. I know people are making it like, oh, this great, I, I don't doubt that she had cash. Her father was very compelling. And he said, well, I taught her to have cash. And she said, it's a cultural thing, whatever. I get that. My my old grandparents who were afraid of, you know, who survived World War II, used to who survived the Holocaust, used to keep cash because it's, it's a, you know, you don't trust the government. I get that. But that doesn't exonerate her here. Why the hell is a DA paying for things in stacks of cash? You should know better than that. So I have serious questions about the case, about Fonnie Willis's conduct. I don't think, based on what I've seen, though, that the, that the burden has been met to disqualify her. The last thing to know about this case is this one is not being tried before the election. Zero percent chance of that. That she She's asking for an August trial date that's going to go through 2025. There's no way that happens. Yeah. So I wanted to just ask you, because you brought up, you know, Trump's rhetoric and the things that, you know, that he routinely says how how do you think trump's rhetoric will influence public perception of his four legal cases yeah. particularly you know not just amongst his supporters but also amongst his detractors yeah so you know so much of this is already baked in as as you know you know there's so much of the country is already of the mindset that, that either everything he does and ever says is horrible or the or everything he ever does and says is the word of god i get that but you know these polls that are really interesting you you've seen polling come out over the last month or so where they ask people would you flip your vote if he were convicted um and it's a fairly small number three, four, five, six percent, but that could be decisive. I mean, this election is going to be close. 
And if 3% of people in the, you know, in the middle or undecideds flip their, or even people who would support him, but not if he gets convicted, that, that could be decisive. I'm interested in, you know, I think when they've been asking that question, I think people have been answering, assuming they mean one of the Jack Smith cases. I wonder if the same numbers would hold for the Manhattan DA's case, because people care less about, I mean, uh, you know, care, look, it's, I think people care less about that conduct than the January 6th related conduct. So, um, you know, his rhetoric has gotten almost so repetitive that it's easy to just let it, you know, let it roll off your back. You go numb to it. I don't think we should do that. I've said several times, I think it's, I think a lot of his rhetoric is destructive. Um, but it, it'll be interesting to see, will a conviction in the Manhattan DA's case, if that happens, flip any minds? By the way, it's not 100% he's going to get convicted. Like, I, I think, you know, odds are better than 50-50 he gets convicted. But what if they get a hung jury? What if one holdout just says, I'm not seeing it? I mean, that's going to be rocket fuel for him. So, um, look, the stakes here, I think the stakes are are obvious. Like, they could ultimately change the result of the 2024 election. I don't think there's any question about that. You see, I don't think that the, I don't think that the, um, the election is going to be as close as many people think, hmm. or these ridiculous polls that are out there. And I just basically look at it um, from a mathematical standpoint. Okay. If you break the country down into three, okay. Republican, Democrat, and independents, and let's give each one of them a third of the voting populace, Fair. just to make numbers yeah, equal, yeah. 50% of Republicans can't stand him. And we see that, including yesterday when they were doing a poll out of the six women that were there speaking with, I forget who it, who it was, um, three said that they would vote for Trump, three said they wouldn't vote for him no matter what. So let's even turn around and say 25% of the 33%, 100% will not vote for him. They will vote for anybody other than him because of his authoritarian rhetoric, because of the, the vile shit that he says on a regular basis. They just will not. Fundamentally, they've had enough of him and the country's still actually doing well. Well, let's just then take that number, all right, and add it on to the 33% that exists with the Democratic Party, because no Democrat is going to vote for Joe, uh, is going to vote for Donald Trump over Joe Biden. I, I, I just don't see any of that. So we're going to put into the column 33% and then 25% of the 33, you know, so let's just say it's, right. um, you know, eight, eight, you know, another 8%. So now you're really, for Republicans, you're at, uh, you know, you're at 20 Three, where Democrats now you're at 31. Um, I'm sorry, you're at 41. Now let's take independence. We've already seen as a direct result of the special elections, whether it's the George Santos, New York one, whether it was the Pennsylvania one, Democrats are consistently winning these special elections by almost double digits, 9, 10, 11 points, right? Depending right. upon where. It goes to show you that more than 50% of at least independents will or are voting on the Democratic line. Again, yeah. for the same reasons that the 25% plus 
of Republicans do not want Donald Trump. I believe that if it was somebody else, if it was a Nikki Haley or even a Ron DeSantis, that this election would be either much closer or Biden could potentially lose. Well, that's what's so interesting. Yeah. I don't think based upon Trump and the statements that he's making that this election is going to be as close as people think. It's so interesting because I've heard uh, political people who I respect say variations on this. Basically, whichever party dumps its candidate first will will crush the other one, right? If the, right. the Republicans get rid of Trump and it's Haley or whoever, um, or if, if Biden steps aside and, and the Democrats pick someone, um, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to try to get into whether any of that will happen. A key a key factor for me, I think, is, and again, I'm playing amateur political uh, analyst here. This is not my lane, but just turnout. Turnout on the Democratic side. I mm-hmm. mean, they had tremendous turnout in 2020, I think motivated in large part by Trump. Um, Biden is showing some fraying. Um, there are some, you know, you see some of these far prog- far left progressives are turning on him because of Israel and Gaza. Um, you see he's losing a little bit of support in, in the black community, in the Hispanic community. Not a lot, but every little bit matters. So, um, I don't know. Michael, by the way, New York has re- reshuffled its congressional map. Are you looking at your district? Are you going to run? So I, I am looking and I'm waiting to find out what happens here. Um, you know, whether Jerry Nadler will still be my district, which is District 12. Um, right. I am so far, I have not gotten the thumbs up from the misses. And it's really angering me, Wait, to be wh- very honest with you and my listeners. I have not gotten the thumbs up from my wife or from my two children. We're and breaking so, news here. I, I was half yeah, kidding, but I, I was half news. kidding, but I meant it. But this is yeah, great. Um, yeah. Yeah. If if they would give me the thumbs up today, I already have the website set up. Oh, my God. Uh, I already have uh, my talking points to go after Jerry Nadler and all of the <laughs> shit that's going on here in New York. But let me just stick with... Well, you well, you, would, be, you would run on the Democratic side, you're saying? As, as I've a been a Democrat my whole life. That's what oh, okay. people forget. I, I worked for Congressman Joe Moakley in 1987 and 88, right? Um, I mean, years and you years ago. You should do ago. it, Michael. So, you should run. I don't care what party. I don't care what. I, we, we need... Honestly, I'm not just saying this because we're friends. I mean... You would just go to Capitol Hill and and just raise hell, and that needs to be done. Do it. But we definitely need that. But you I know, know. I, which brings me to which brings me to a great question that I want to ask you, because who else is raising hell right now? And he's not even you know he's not even uh, right now elected right a former president. What potential consequences do Trump's statements about the judiciary and law enforcement agencies have on public trust in, you know, democratic institutions? Yeah, I think that is just a core function of Trump. And and I think it's really dangerous. And I think it's always worth calling out. I mean, look, a person is entitled to call into question any of our powerful institutions or individuals. And a defendant is allowed to uh, to attack verbally the charges against him, the prosecutor, the judge. Not a great idea, but you're allowed to do that. But the problem is Trump does it in a way that is over the top and ac- often across the line. And he's done it from day one. He's done it from back to his Mueller days. Um, and I do think it's had the effect of really eroding trust in the system, trust in our institutions. This is a theme of both of my books, really. But I also want to say, and again, Trump is the primary malefactor here. He's the primary wrongdoer. But I also want to say this is why, you know, I've been irritating 
some uh, hard left anti-Trump people because I'm also not willing to overlook what I see as abuses or rule bending by anyone going after Trump because they're going after Trump, right? And, and this is why we, we just talked about some of the problems that I see with Fonnie Willis. Um, I've seen problems with some of the things that Jack Smith has done. I see I, I see problems with some of what Letitia James has done. And again, Donald Trump, if you have to rank them on who has undercut trust in institutions most, it's Donald Trump. He ranks first and second and third. But that doesn't mean that we ought to excuse or overlook rule bending, ethic bending, um, out of the ordinary conduct by prosecutors and judges just because they're going after a guy who people don't like. Um, and well, so- they did that. Too. Well, but in all fairness, Ellie, you and I again have had this conversation in the green room at CNN. Yeah. We've had it offline, On air, sure. right? Yeah. Just you and I bullshitting, talking when I came to your book party. You know, yeah. we had the same conversation. I was unconstitutionally remanded right. back to Otisville I agree because I refused to waive my First Amendment constitutional right. And yes. something that I was talking about uh, as well the other day, Patrick McFarland, who's the RRM, the residential reentry manager out of MDC, signed the remand order predicated upon my refusal to sign an FLM, a uh, federal location a- a monitoring order. agreement. Yeah. Okay, here's the problem, though. The FLM that they wanted me to sign, forgetting about the fact that it violated paragraph number one, violated my First Amendment constitutional right. Right. It wasn't even an authorized or legitimate FLM agreement. This whole incident is It was not the nuts. standard FLM agreement. All right, so they, they added the in there. Me. Yeah, yeah. They remanded me off of a fake fraudulent document that they created that not only did they create, but also violated my First Amendment constitutional right. I, I completely agree with you on this. This was an outrageous incident. And um, and I will say, Michael, you are probably, you know, I wrote my first book is a criticism of Bill Barr and, and the Trump administration and the way that they violated uh, a lot of our longstanding standards and ethics. And one of the points I make is, you know, Barr was very aggressive about using DOJ defensively to protect Trump's cronies, Roger Stone, Michael Flynn. These names seem out of uh, out of the past now. Um, but one thing that Trump always asked, but Bill Barr refused to do, but perhaps with the exception of you, is to actually use DOJ and FBI to go after enemies, right? Trump wanted Andy McCabe indicted. Trump wanted Comey indicted. But you, it actually, what happened with you, I mean, it's never been conclusively tied back to Bill Barr or Trump, but what DOJ did to you during the Barr-Trump administration when they threw you back in because you wouldn't agree to be silent or not publish your book is really probably the closest thing to that. That is, I, I mean, I'm, I know you're you're doggedly digging into this, but I, but I still want to see the full story here. What they did to you is inexcusable and, and anti Well, we're never going to see the full story, uh, Ellie, because- I can't get a single document from even despite the fact we have two different FOIA cases right. going right now. It's now 27 months Jeez. and they have not turned over a single piece of paper. And that's the same FOIA request that government stated that there are no documents that are relevant to my request when it turned out that I had four of the documents, they apologized and then determined there was 486,000 documents. 
they put you back in for what, three weeks or something until Judge Hellerstein ruled that this is bullcrap and, and he's Another out? 16 days, making 16 it 51, days. Yeah. To- 51 total days but honestly, of solitary confinement. And honestly, if you didn't have Judge Hellerstein, you kind of got lucky because he's he's the kind of judge who would do this. He's kind of he, he'll do what he wants. But I think a lot of judges would have wanted a hearing and fact finding. Like you could have been much longer. Um, you know, not to minimize. I mean, it's it's well. That's crazy why that that when we you. went to the Second Circuit, I yeah. and we're we've now posted a uh, a request in bank uh, in order to speak with the judges uh, in their determination. One of the things that Judge um, Parker mm-hmm. turned around and said to government, how, how do we stop this from ever happening yeah. again? Like, what is, the, uh, what is the ability to prevent something like this? And government's response, which I thought was not just lame but stupid, <laughs> is that, well— you know, the Bureau of Prisons has administrative remedies, the BP 8, 9, 10, 11, oh, and please. so on. You could exact, that's what he did. Yeah. He slapped himself on the forehead and he said, that's <laughs> not a deterrence because yeah. that's the word that he wanted to use. What is right. the deterrence? So she said, well, you know, they could file the Bureau of Prison administrative remedy. He goes, for you to get to a BP 12 that would give you the right to even file a habeas petition, it would yeah. be almost two years. Yeah, good that, luck. And BOP so is goes, the, the densest bureaucracy known to man. Yeah, there's no way. That's for sure. So he said, why yeah. don't you give me another thought? So she said, well, like what Mr. Cohen did. He filed the habeas petition. It was granted. So others would be able to use his case as precedent in order to avoid, you know, this unconstitutional remand right. or, you know, um, or improper action of government. So he goes, that's not a deterrence to be taken <laughs> and then to be put. And then now you have to file a habeas petition. That doesn't yeah. sound like deterrence. And that's why we're so confused on how the Second Circuit ended up agreeing that Bivens is dead. And Bivens, as uh, my listeners should know, is the case that you bring against the government for violating your rights in order to hold them accountable. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's why we want this in bank. And that case is going to go to the Supreme Court. And, you know, there are several, you know, legal scholars that are intending writing amicus briefs that believe that this case, which is Hmm. already being taught in some law schools, is as relevant as like Brown versus Board of Education or Plessy versus Ferguson. (laughs) Because it goes right to. No, I'm dead. No, 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 no. Not just because it's me. Ellie, Ellie, what happens tomorrow? What happens tomorrow, God forbid, a million times Donald Trump becomes president of the United States? And because you have been a critic of his and he's angry at you, Mm -hmm. SEAL Team 6 shows up to your house. They bag you, tag you and throw you into prison, maybe because he didn't like the book that you wrote or because you are critical of him on CNN. Right. Right. How are you getting out of how are you going to get out? Well, now all of a sudden you're locked up in a hot box in a dirty, disgusting, solitary confinement, you know, scenario. This is your First Amendment constitutional right that's being violated. This right. is really no joke. This goes much bigger than Michael Cohen. This I, is I agree to your ensure case that this yeah. never happens to anyone ever again. I agree your case is, is important, uh, and I applaud you for bringing it. I'm just trying to keep it in proper historical perspective here. 
Well, it's but it's but it's true because if they can do this on your First Amendment right, they can do it to any of your constitutional well, that's, rights. That's why In this fact, is important. Yeah. Based upon, I mean, based upon the authoritarian comments that Trump has been making, he wants to get rid of the judiciary and the legislative branch, confer all power onto himself. Therefore, unless you're doing like what happens in North Korea or China or, you know, in um, uh, Saudi Arabia with Mohammed bin Salman, you can't say anything negative about Trump or fear like what Putin just did, you know, yeah. you grab somebody like Navalny, you lock them up because you control the military and the police, and I then you say, send them to Siberia. We always have guardrails, though. We, we always have grand juries and juries and prosecutors. You don't have that and, if there's no judiciary, right? Yeah, I mean, he's he not going to abolish the judiciary. We're, we're always going to have a judiciary. He, he I would, don't know. He, he could, wouldn't in work. Fact, he, doesn't... he could. He could put. He could put Supreme Court judges in prison too if he wants. He has ultimate authority. But Michael, he, he All was power conferred. I, upon I don't want the to be executive on the, branch. I don't want to be on the side of arguing that, that Donald Trump does not have authoritarian impulses. He clearly does. Um, but he also was president for four years, and he didn't abolish the courts or anything close. So I, I, I share concern about his prior conduct and his statements, but I. I I, I'm not going to—I think you're painting a, a far more apocalyptic picture than, than I foresee. And I think that we really have to think that way because that's the way he's thinking, and he will push He will push as far as he possibly can. And don't kid yourself. When somebody tells you that they want to rewrite the Constitution, Putin did it in Russia, and Trump's feeling is if he could do it there, I can do it here. So as the hour comes to an end, and it goes by quick when you and I speak, I have a question that just is, relates to Ellie Honig. Yeah. So my question to you is, looking ahead, what are the key legal and political factors that you, Ellie, will be monitoring closely as these cases progress? So that's a great question. I, I would say there's, there's question one and question one A, and, the, and they're related. And we, I alluded to this earlier. Question one is, will Donald Trump be held accountable? Um, it, it, in the criminal courts. Um, I think that is the number one question as we head into the really the heart of the 2024 election. Um, what will the outcome be? Will our jury system hold? What will the jury system make of these cases? In particular, the two that seem most likely to be tried before the election are, are yours, the hush money case, the, the falsification of business records case, right. and two, Jack Smith's case, if it comes back down from the Supreme Court in time. But then 1A uh, to that is... Is it done fairly? Is it done? Is accountability achieved without compromising or breaking our norms and our practices and our ethics? And so I think it's I've made clear where I stand on Donald Trump's conduct over the years. I've written books about it. I've done countless segments about his abuses, his violations, and, and in some instances, his crimes. But I also think, and, and your audience is sort of perfect for this because, you know, Midas is a great outlet. I, the, the brothers are awesome. But, you know, your audience, I think, is very far left um, for the most part. And I would just urge people to not – John Stewart I'm, – I'm not going to do it justice, but John Stewart made a similar point when he came back on The Daily Show the other day, which is, yes, we need to be clear about who's who here and who is in the wrong and in the right. But it's never an answer to just excusify and, and, and sort of come up with explanations for – uh, all manner of excessive conduct by prosecutors and judges and other people in power. So I, what, I, what I'm looking to see is, is Donald Trump 
brought to accountability? And is he brought to accountability in a way that is consistent with our laws and our practices and our values? Mm-hmm. To, the, to the point that no one is above the law, that the law treats everybody equally, yeah. and that nobody gets a benefit you know, over another person, whether it's based upon being a former president or whether it's based upon how much money you have. I think that's what you're really trying to say. Yeah, and I yeah. agree with you. I agree with you wholeheartedly. Yeah, but also the, the flip side of that is no, nobody should be below the law. And there are absolutely ways in which Donald Trump has gotten softer, better treatment from the legal system than in the normal person. But there's also ways in which the opposite has happened. I'll give you an example. Like the speed with which his cases are being rushed to trial this would not happen if the election was not around the corner. This would not happen in a normal case. And whoa, 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 whoa. T- time out. Hold yeah. On. Mine was 48 hours. Well, you're, but you, 48 you, hours. You was a different situation. You was DOJ twisting Why? your arm, putting a gun to your head, metaphorically. I get that. But I'm saying the amount of time that he, his lawyers and he have been given to prep for these trials, and if if they're going to be sort of put back to back to back with no prep time in, in between, it's just not the way that it would normally work. And Jack Goldsmith, who's, who's a very respected conservative scholar who is no fan of Trump's, wrote a really good piece that was actually on Lawfare the other day, basically saying, look, like, let's be real here. These judges are compressing these timelines. They're rushing things because they want him tried before the election. And We'll see if the Supreme Court puts a stop to that. I'm not sure what, what they'll do. But so, yeah, look, my bottom line is um, nobody should be above law. Nobody should be below the law either. We, we need accountability, but we need it done right. Agreed. Ellie, thank you, my brother. I will be seeing you hopefully very soon in the green room and obviously uh, hoping to have you come back because I, I don't have to tell you. Um, there's a lot. There's a, there's lot, a lot going on here. That was great, Michael. Thank you. Cohen for Congress 2026 or whatever. (laughs) 2024. Thank you, my brother. I will see you soon. Be well. And now for today's mea culpa. Look, there are lots of reasons not to want Donald Trump to ever step foot back into the White House ever, ever, ever again. I mean, the sheer terror of the dystopian future that Trump offers is once again mimicking The Handmaid's Tale and should scare the living shit out of all of us. Last week, the Alabama Supreme Court ruled that embryos, I mean, get a load of this, the Alabama Supreme Court ruled that embryos frozen in vitro fertilization procedures are children under state law and that a person responsible for their destruction can be held liable. The opinion is a staggering attack on every aspect of reproductive health, including the freedom of people experiencing infertility to use reproductive technology without fear of government reprisal. This weird and unsettling move by the court represents the culmination of a movement to enshrine into law the unscientific and purely religious claim that life begins when a sperm fertilizes an egg. So goodbye to the separation of church and state and hello to Christian nationalism. In the words of one justice, it will now be up to the courts to dictate how IVF can be performed in a way that won't cause harm to unborn children and won't incur the wrath of an angry God. How does he know what makes God mad? I mean, sounds purely speculative to me, but then again, 
I'm not a Christian. I'm Jewish. And I believe that science should take precedent over religion in matters of public health. But it appears that Alabama, with its incredibly strict abortion laws, does not agree with me. Or the science, for that matter. And Alabama isn't alone. This thing isn't isolated to a single backward state. On the contrary, other backward states are using Alabama's path to erasing reproductive rights as a roadmap should Trump return to the Oval Office. Advocates and legal experts worry the Alabama ruling could show a path forward for the personhood movement, I mean, whatever that is, in other conservative states. Recent reporting in Politico and the New York Times expose a plan to, quote, Christianize the federal government, including the implementation of a national abortion ban if the right takes back the president. And I say the right because Nikki Haley is also in favor of a national abortion ban. The Alabama court found that embryos and fertilized eggs are considered children under the Alabama Wrongful Death of a Minor Act, even if they have not been implanted in a uterus. I mean, can you imagine? The unborn children are children under the act, without exception, based on developmental stage, physical location, or any other ancillary characteristics. I mean, there's no way to describe it. It's fucking insane. Now, the White House on Tuesday condemned the decision as exactly the type of chaos that we expected when the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade and paved the way for the politicians to dictate some of the most personal decisions families can make. But the Alabama Supreme Court believes that they know better than we do. Fertility treatments are already invasive and difficult on the patients, but this is something else altogether. I mean, what becomes of your eggs should you choose not to use them? I mean, it's just one of the many questions that go without answers presented by this ruling. Doctors feeling blindsided have no clue how to advise their patients and, God forbid, our very own theocratic SCOTUS take up the issue. Not only is the entire court Catholic, but six of them are radical Catholics. You hear that? Six of them are radical Catholics who could care less what the Pope has to say about abortion rights because they are listening to a higher power, the power of Christian nationalism. This, according to The Hill, the resurgence of Christian nationalism will come as no surprise to anyone who has watched Trump's MAGA movement merge with a constellation of extremist preachers and apocalyptic prophets. Many of these fuckers believe that Trump was appointed by God to rule America. I mean, they quite frankly think he's the second coming of Jesus Christ. I don't know where that puts the rest of us, but I'd say the gulag if we don't agree. MAGA is framing the 2024 election as a battle not just for America's soul, but for the salvation of all mankind. Which to some degree, I agree with. Because if these fucking crazy people get another shot at the White House, mankind is in serious trouble. Too many people die for religious causes. And now, right now, Alabama wants all the embryos to live for a religious cause. 
I mean, you can't make this shit up, folks, but let's hope that this new low is the darkness before the dawn. And remember, vote Biden-Harris. And as always, thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is written by Paula Killen. Our managing producer and editor is Lisa Orkin. Mea Culpa is a Midas Touch podcast, executive produced by the Midas Touch Network and LSJ Media Group. 